I'm Joe Goda, and this is the Let's Break Good Podcast, where we never settle for good enough. Our guest today is Professor David Grayson. For 40 years, Professor Grayson has been a leader on purpose and sustainability in the world of business. He's a speaker, facilitator, author, and social entrepreneur who has started up a number of public-private community partnerships. Professor Grayson currently chairs the Institute of Business Ethics in the United Kingdom and holds the title of Professor Emeritus at the Cranefield University School of Management. Today, we'll be talking about the evolution of corporate social responsibility, the need for business leadership, and what individuals can do in their day jobs to help make the world a better place. Welcome, Professor Grayson. Joe, delighted to be with you. I want to break free. All right, Professor Grayson, let's start by going back to 1978, where you're working at Procter & Gamble, your first job in your distinguished career, which started with selling soap. Can you tell me a little bit about what the business culture was like back then and what inspired you to leave that job to pursue a purpose-driven career? So Procter & Gamble, obviously a great American headquartered business, had a significant uh, presence in the UK and the UK headquarters were in the, the city of Newcastle upon Tyne in the northeast of England. And I went there after having done a law degree in Cambridge and a politics and masters of the European Union degree in Brussels. So it was quite a culture shock going to, to the northeast of England and going into my first job. And yes, I was uh, working in brand management in, with P&G, trying to persuade people to buy a certain brand of washing up liquid and then a brand of, 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 of soap powder and, and, and so on. And I got a fantastic management training. P&G rightly has a great reputation for the kind of management training it provides. But in those days, of course, the idea was that businesses did business and governments provided all kinds of services for society and you had charities and different non-profit groups to fill some of the gaps but you certainly didn't have businesses really involved in any significant way in wider society you might have a company charitable foundation for example that would make some charitable donations to worthy local causes and so on very occasionally in those days, you might have some employees getting involved in some fundraising, but that would be very, very limited. But whilst I was in Procter & Gamble in the northeast of England, I started having a look around to see where the new jobs and the new economic activity in the northeast was going to come from. And it very quickly became apparent, talking to the different political parties, the local councils, the trade unions, and the employers' organisations, but there wasn't a lot of new thinking going on. There was a heavy dependence on some old traditional industries, steel, coal mining, shipbuilding, heavy engineering, basic chemical manufacturing. And those were all industries that were very clearly going to be in very rapid decline. And so to cut a very long story short, I ended up quitting my job 
with Procter and Gamble and starting what today we would call a social enterprise. We didn't have that language back in 1980. And we created something which is still going strong today, Project Northeast, now the PE Group, which was trying to find new ways of creating jobs and economic activity, particularly helping young people to get new skills, encouraging young people to make their own jobs, create their own businesses. And we set up a youth enterprise centre, ran a business competition for young people on television, started a Young People's Lane Fund and so on. And from the very beginning, we decided that our approach would be based on trying to engage businesses as well. So alongside appealing to various grant-giving foundations and so on, and looking for help from local councils, we also approached a lot of the biggest companies doing business in the UK and persuaded them to not just give us some cash, but also to start to give us some executives on loan to help us with projects and provide us with some surplus premises that they didn't need and so on and so forth. And really from those very early days, I've seen quite a a fantastically rich evolution of the ideas about the ways in which business interacts with society and why it needs to do so. When you, when you left that first job, you saw this opportunity for impact and growth. And was there a sentiment that the government just couldn't, you know, reach everyone in need or they couldn't have the, the mindset? What was the rationale, the reason that you saw that this needed to happen? Was it government not being able to, to get everyone or was it corporate having the surplus of cash and ability? Where did you see that happening? So you have to remember that what was happening in the political world in the UK at the time was the election of Margaret Thatcher as a prime minister coming in with a very, very different political philosophy. At the same time in the United States, you had the election of President Reagan with a very similar get government off the backs of, of business and let um, enterprise um, be enterprising. But both of them, um, and I actually heard them with my own ears in, in, in conferences during the 1980s, talk about the fact that if business did want to have greater freedom and not to have so much government regulation and so much restriction, then there had to be a quid pro quo. And the quid pro quo, they were very clear about, was that businesses themselves had to be more active in helping to tackle some of the challenges of social exclusion and the need for economic regeneration. And we were lucky because we were in the right place at at the right time and were part of what became a very successful movement and organisation in in my country called Business in the Community, which again is is still going strong now after all these years, to mobilise businesses to help initially with inner city regeneration, but very quickly quickly broadened its agenda to promote the idea of what else could a responsible business do in its own interests, as well as in the interests of, of the wider community. So there was a change at the top of government in their mindset of what business should and can do. Did you find an openness and an ease and transition in the leadership in the corporate world as well? Or did you have a tough time convincing them 
Uh, was it hard to bring them along? I think there were a number of very prominent business leaders in the UK who understood and who actually believed passionately that you need to have prosperous back streets if you're going to have prosperous high streets or in the American context, prosperous main street needs prosperous back streets. Hmm. In other words, there were a group of business leaders from some big companies like Unilever, like Shell, like many of our our banks uh, who understood that actually it was in the long-term interest of business. Today we talk about ideas like there's a social license to operate. Well, already in the 1980s, some really thoughtful business leaders understood the importance of a social license to operate and that it made long-term business sense to try and help tackle some of the issues about low aspiration of some young people in schools, about the inappropriateness of quite a lot of, of youth training schemes at that point, about how can business contribute to the regeneration of areas that were devastated by the decline of many of the old traditional industries. Your, your right place, right time for this work. What were some of the early wins that you got with the companies that kind of showed the possibility of this new type of social responsibility and impact work? So the work that we were doing in the Northeast of England through this nonprofit called Project Northeast was being mirrored by hundreds of other organizations very quickly around the country. We had what was known as a local enterprise agency movement that the umbrella organization business in the community helped to promote and to raise the profile for in the 1980s and then followed up with other networks like business education partnerships that were modeled on very successful American examples like the the Boston Compact in Massachusetts from the the 1980s onwards and so on. And so we were able to show on the ground around the country the very tangible ways in which businesses, both large ones and small ones, could actually help with surplus premises, with executives on loan, with encouraging skills transfer from different um, professionals, as well as giving money. But then using that experience, we very quickly started to say, this is all very well and good, but actually how much more impact businesses could have on society positively if we could also start to think about the core business activities themselves. So can we encourage companies to think about what became pre-recruitment or customised training, where if they knew that they were going to open up a new plant or a new warehouse or a new distribution centre or a new supermarket somewhere, they actually went into the local community and provided appropriate training for the long-term unemployed in that community so that when they were ready to recruit, the local long-term unemployed could compete on an equal basis for the new jobs that were, were available. Similarly, we started to get some big companies thinking about what were their environmental impacts and how could they start to manage those, those impacts. 
and in business in the community, we were incredibly fortunate because we had the very hands-on presidency of His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles. He became the president of the organisation back in 1985. And even in those early, early years, he was a passionate champion of the importance of, of, of um, the environment and the role that businesses need to, to take in improving their environmental performance. We actually made a movie, can you believe it, back in the 1980s <laughs> between okay. the Prince of Wales and John Cleese, um, who I'm sure mm-hmm. your um, older listeners at, at least will be familiar with, with, with um, John Cleese and um, some of his... Um, of, 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 of his classic television series. Yes, I actually familiar. He's a comedian, right? Indeed. Oh, excellent. So, so you got some champions in, you know, the leadership at the highest level, buying into this idea. Another interesting thing that you mentioned is that early on, it seems you found success by integrating impact in the core business of these companies that you're working with. Over the years, it seems that perhaps a lot of companies have drifted away from that in that they have separate CSR, separate foundations that are not linked to the core business. And actually they try to really keep them separate. I think How that, do you think we I mean, drifted that way? Or was that from the beginning as well? I, well, I, 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 I think that you're right. And as these ideas about what, what um, became known as CSR or corporate social responsibility, personally, I now try and avoid that term because it has become so misunderstood by so many people in the media and elsewhere. But as CSR or corporate social responsibility began to become more popular in the 1990s uh, and the beginning of the 2000s, you did have a sense of this being something that was a bolt on to business operations when it needed to be built in to business purpose and strategy. And my very first book with a good friend and colleague, Adrian Hodges, who I met through business in the community. We were both working there um, for many years. Adrian and I wrote a book together back in 2001, which we called Everybody's Business. And the long title was Managing Risks and Opportunities in Today's Global Society. And our argument was, and it remains true to this day, I still passionately believe this, that yes, companies do need to minimise their negative social and environmental and economic impacts and thereby minimise the risks that they face. But actually, if you really want to make great progress, if you really want to embed sustainability in the heart of a critical mass of companies, you can only do that if you get them to think about the upside if you get them to think about the opportunities that can come from accentuating the positive social and environmental and economic impacts and that you know in terms of core beliefs that have motivated me in this space for so many years it is a belief that we really have to look at sustainability as a driver of innovation, as a source of new business opportunity. I want to come back to you talking about this misunderstanding around corporate social responsibility. Because I think to the average listener, they think, oh, that's a great thing. That's some, you know, talk, talk about what, what is the misunderstanding 
Where does it come from? Why is it dangerous? So I think for quite a number of people nowadays, there is this sense that corporate social responsibility, or even more if you abbreviate it to a TLA, a three-letter abbreviation, namely CSR, then that's misunderstood as only being about um, corporate philanthropy and employee volunteering and some good works projects. Whereas for me, whatever the terminology that you use, whether you do talk about corporate social responsibility or, as I now prefer, talk about responsible business and embedding sustainability, what we need to be talking about is the core of why a business exists and how it behaves. Now, if you understand corporate social responsibility in those terms about the purpose of business and how business behaves, then we don't have a problem on the the definition and, and, and the terminology. But I think a lot of people have a much more narrow view around the world when they use expressions like CSR or corporate social responsibility. I don't want to get too bogged down because it can sound terribly academic in terms of terminology, but I I do when when I get a phone call from a journalist or something and he wants some comment or she wants some comment on corporate social responsibility, I do just say, well, let's just be clear in our terms, first of all, so that we're not talking at cross purposes. Yeah, this is something that comes up in the podcast a lot as we're doing interviews in our stories, which is one of the hardest conversations to have is when someone is thinking the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. Again, they're not trying to hurt someone. They're not trying to, you know, maliciously do anything. But I also believe that there's a loss of impact and a loss of business as well when you're trying to totally separate the CSR into a separate thing and not the mainstream and mainline business. I just think there's a lot of loss happening. Uh, so what maybe you can talk a little bit to what you think you gain when you shift your mindset to this responsible business embedded sustainability. What does the business gain? What does the society gain? Well, I think from the business perspective, it is a driver to go looking for innovation in new, in unexpected places. It can therefore be a huge catalyst to create new business opportunities. I think if you have a much more holistic view of why a business exists and its role in society, that is much more motivating to not just younger people today, but actually employees of of, of different generations. And actually, I think there is now growing evidence that it, it makes business sense in terms of bottom line impact. It helps you to save money and it can help you to make money. So I think that this really now is a, is a no-brainer in terms of businesses looking at how they manage their social and environmental economic impacts, taking responsibility for them, minimising the negative, maximising the positive. From society's perspective, if you can get to 100% of how a business makes its money, rather than be only focused 
on say a half a percent or one percent or even two or five percent of pre-tax profits then the positive impact on society is so much greater whether it's in terms of employment or it's in terms of provision of appropriate goods and services positive impact on, on, on the environment and so on. Just take one specific example. There's an increasing number of companies now around the world who are looking at how can we as businesses in our own long-term business interest contribute to more inclusive as well as sustainable growth? How can we help people who are perhaps on the margins of society, don't have the right kind of skills or for other reasons they are at the moment excluded from the mainstream workforce? How can we as businesses be more proactive to help such groups to get into employment and then stay successfully in employment and also to advance in employment from entry level jobs and so on? So, for example, I've just done an ebook with a, a wonderful organization in Israel called Mala, which is Israel Business for Social Responsibility. And our ebook, which you can go on the Marlow website and download for free, is called uh, Leaving No One Behind, uh, the Role of, of, of Israeli Businesses in uh, Inclusive Growth. And there we look at how a number of businesses, both Israeli headquartered and some big international companies doing business or business in Israel, are helping different um, marginalized communities, whether that's Israelis with disabilities or people from the ultra-Orthodox community or from the um, Arab-Israeli population, both to get into work and to stay in, in work and advance in work. And that, for me, is a great example where you're not just talking about the philanthropic dollars or the philanthropic shekels in that case, but you are talking much more mainstream about core business functions. I find when you get people there, you start talking about, hey, this makes business sense, it's bottom line. There's still a little bit of stigma, which is, well, how should they be profiting from doing good? And there seems to be some kind of resistance and disgust to that. How do you see that we can discuss in a way that can break that stigma, that element? That's an interesting one. Um, because I think we should remember that businesses are businesses they're not charities they are not public agencies they are not government and there is nothing wrong with fair profits decently ethically made on the contrary um i think you know, it's it, it's a very very noble thing to be a responsible good ethical entrepreneur providing jobs for other people providing goods and services that other people want and need and so on uh, and doing that fairly and ethically and responsibly is is something which I think is is incredibly positive. And I think this idea that somehow it's either profit or its purpose is 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 is, is actually anachronistic. It's it's actually a false choice. I mm. think what we're talking about is better long term profits through purpose. Absolutely. In talking about those those profits, it, the capitalist system, the profits have gone up and up over the years. Uh, there's been recent tax cuts here in the U.S., and we just see soaring corporate profits. Do you, do you think that the 
responsibility has kept pace with that? So I think you're quite right to to highlight the fact that the form in which both the capitalist system in your country and the country I know best, the UK, is functioning now is not actually fit for purpose and personally I don't think is sustainable into the long term. And actually more important than what I what I think, um, or even what, what, what you think, Joe, and what your podcast thinks, I think, you know, you've only got to look now at very, very influential men and women like Larry Fink, who is the founder and CEO of BlackRock, the world's biggest institutional investor. I've been reading with increasing fascination and interest his annual letter that he issues each January to the companies in which BlackRock invests. And if you go back now to his first letter in 2012 and and track them from 2012 through to 2020, what is very clear is the increasing urgency with which the the founder of what is now, I repeat, the world's biggest institutional investor, $7 trillion of funds under management, the increasing urgency with which he emphasizes that companies need to have a broader societal purpose. They need to address the concerns and the interests of different stakeholders. And the 2020 letter is very explicit about the urgency of the climate emergency and the importance of companies producing really stringent reports on their carbon strategies, their carbon emissions reduction strategies and so on. And that's those Larry Fink letters. They're just one example of an increasing number of what I would regard as mainstream voices saying we have to renew, we have to refresh, we have to reset capitalism. The Financial Times, for instance, which many of us would argue is um, one of, if not the global business newspaper. I recognize Wall Street Journal may may sort of um, dispute that a bit, but um, I think the FT, really important, influential global business newspaper, they now have a platform on their website, which is called explicitly Reset Capitalism. It's worth your podcast listeners going and, and, and having a look around the Financial Times website, have a look at some of the, the videos, short videos they have on there read the introduction to why they've created this platform on the FT from the then editor, Lionel Barber, about the importance, the urgency of renewing capitalism. Because alongside internalizing the externalities, as the economists say, the importance of managing your your, your environmental impacts, I think there is also increasing recognition now that there are systemic risks to business, to the global financial system, of hyper-global inequalities. And it's not an either-or again. It's actually about how you deal both with the systemic risks to the financial system and to business from the climate emergency, and also how you deal with the systemic risk of hyper-global inequalities. So yes, thinking about what's the level of executive pay, what's the ratio between the highest 
paid and the lowest paid full-time equivalent in our company. What kind of opportunities do we provide for ordinary employees to share through profit and, 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 and um, uh, employee share options uh, schemes and so on? How you incentivize the mass of people in the business to feel a genuine stake in the business? How a company is addressing issues of living wage, of in-work poverty, and making sure that a company is supporting its vulnerable employees in terms of helping with financial literacy, etc., etc. All of those, I think, are part of a modern responsible business agenda. I believe you're speaking towards an existential crisis that's causing some of this, that these businesses do understand, as business is good right now, maybe better than ever, that they still need customers. They need stability for those customers. They need resources to create their products. And that's driving them quite a bit. Do you think that's a main driving force? Or is it there's a renew, also an idea of new renewed business ethics, shareholders, there's public demands? Or do you think this existential crisis is a, the biggest well, driving force? I think it's a great question. And I think it's a combination of factors. And undoubtedly, there are more businesses now that recognize you can't do very good business on a dead planet, for instance. Um, I think that a lot of business leaders now understand that there are huge opportunities with a lot of the, the really disruptive technologies that aren't now science fiction. They are in the works. They are already being commercialized and so on. Things like artificial intelligence, a lot of, of biotech, gene editing, and so on, which are going to be technologies that will have profound disruption of whole industry sectors in the decade that we've just started in the 2020s. Things like um, protein precision engineering, which I don't begin to really un understand in, in total, but which as I do understand what's going on in, in, in that particular technology, it's going to have huge disruption of the global dairy industry. One example. There are all of these major new disruptive technologies which will create lots of opportunities, but they also will raise and do raise huge ethical questions. And in many instances, we're perhaps seeing the technology race ahead of our collective ability to really think through all of the all of the ethical implications. So I think a lot of people recognize all of these developments too, as well as the pressures that rightly are coming from a younger generation that sees the huge challenges from climate and the climate emergency and from hyperglobal inequalities and so on and wants action now, not just words. Absolutely. I like to think that the one of the worst qualities of humankind is that we lack foresight, that we can't <laughs> prevent, we can't see things into the future that could, you know, if we acted now could prevent. And yet when the emergency comes, when it gets closer to our face, there's nothing that can stop us to, from solving it. 
And it's this like tension of ability in the moment, but inability to have that future thinking that you know, really sometimes I think challenges uh, this kind of work and trying to get business to act. But at least they are starting to talk. Uh, and I'd argue, actually, that a lot more businesses, not just talking, but they are acting as well. Do we have enough businesses doing enough yet? No, of course not. But I also think we do need to recognize and celebrate the extent of the, the progress in business that has been made. You know, if you take, as I can now do, not just a five or a 10 year time horizon, but a 40 year time horizon, then where we are today in terms of this as a mainstream business issue is so completely different to when I was uh, starting out, just giving up my my, my Potter and Gamble salary and, and, and so on. Um, I just want to pick up, Joe, on this point about the importance of foresight. I totally agree. And I think if we're thinking about what do your listeners really need to have if they want to be really powerful exemplars of breaking good, hmm. then I think amongst the kind of leadership skills and competences for sustainability, one really important set of skills is definitely around this kind of future orientation and understanding what are the different big revolutions of technology and of markets and of values as well as the revolutions in demographics and development and how critically they all interact and reinforce each other and i think that mindset which is is future orientated and perpetually curious about how do all of these massive developments play out is 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 is, is probably one of the most critical sets of skills for your listeners to to make sure that, that that they are acquiring. That resonates with me a lot because one of the main things we're asking listeners to do is try and break old mindsets, traditional ways of working. And what you're suggesting here is really gaining a skill to articulate the future and to raise the stakes for the future of both what we can do and what we must do to in order that there will be a future that's good for business. Indeed. I mean, I think, you know, the really fundamental question, and this is articulation from the World Business Council for Sustainable Development from some 10 years ago now, how will nine to 10 billion people live at least reasonably well within the constraints of one planet by mid-century? That, if you like, is the fundamental defining question of sustainable development. Then I wonder if we could then talk about if you're an individual who's ready to take this on and they're trying to decide what company they want to look for, because not everyone wants to be the entrepreneur. Some people want the stability of the, the corporate job with the good paycheck and everything that comes with that, the benefits with it. 
when they're analyzing the different companies they could be joining, what do you think makes one stronger than another in terms of this responsible business? Is it their model? Is it their leader? Is it something else? Well, I think it's the it's the combination. Um, yes, right, so leadership which gets this is really driving this at all levels, by the way, of the of the company, not just the CEO and the, the C-suite or, or the board, but also the strategic business unit heads, the country managers, and so on and so forth. But leadership is only one part about it. It's also, is the, is, 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 is the company committed to some big, hairy, audacious goals around sustainability? Is sustainability at the heart of the corporate strategy? Is there a company culture which encourages employees even from relatively early stages in their career in their time in the business is there a culture which encourages employees to take the initiative and to champion ideas for sustainability you and i joe first came across each other in the context of encouraging people to be intrapreneurs and to be mm-hmm. social entrepreneurs so to create value inside a large company both for the company but also for wider society and i think one of the the really interesting ways in which you can test out to see is this a company where not only will i feel that my values are congruent and in alignment with the values of the business but also is this a company where I will have opportunities to prove what I can achieve and what I'm capable of contributing from an early stage? Then one of the practical tests is, have they got any kind of program? You don't need to use the language of intrapreneurism and social entrepreneurs, but do they have any programs that encourage employees to come forward with ideas that will improve the sustainability performance of the business. That, that's a really good test. I think folks might be wondering, well, if I'm going into an interview, how do I test this? How do I know? Because I think a lot of them, again, have great uh, marketing and can say they're doing it, but you've given, I think, an interesting way to um, poke at that a little bit. And you mentioned entrepreneurship, which is something I'm passionate about. And there's no way to know going in how strong the status quo is. And I think no matter what company, there's going to be folks in there that don't want to see change and want business as usual. Uh, but through your work, has there been maybe any certain job title or vertical in business where there is a little bit more ability to finesse this? Or is it just more of the personality type? And you could be in accounting, you could be in marketing, you could be in sales, and there's equal opportunity. Or is there a certain place in business where you find that the entrepreneur or the one person who's looking to make a difference in their day job, and not in the, again, siloed off CSR, but in the mainline business, is there any particular title or vertical? So I don't think that it's necessarily a particular function. I think clearly if you are working in a company which is very heavily brand-led, then in those circumstances, it's quite likely that a lot of the, the opportunity will be in the, in, in, in the brands. But when we wrote um, the first book, Everybody's Business, back in 2001, I repeat, 
then we very consciously chose the title Everybody's Business to convey this wasn't just for people with certain job titles. It was the business of everybody in a business. And what for me is really exciting now is an increasing recognition that people in finance, in R&D, in marketing, in new business development, and so on, have a very crucial role to play in really embedding sustainability. And if you really want to embed sustainability, it does have to become everybody's business in different parts of the business. Maybe a question they can ask their uh, potential employers if they've read that book and how they feel about it. That might be a good test too. Uh, well, to see, that, you know. uh, it, it might be quite hard for them to track down a copy of that, <laughs> of that now. But um, the what they can do, and because I still keep my Procter and Gamble marketing mm. training and brand training somewhere in my 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 genes, I don't mm. ever miss a marketing opportunity. So I'm going to shamelessly plug now the most recent book which i wrote with two canadian colleagues and friends which is called all in which is about the future of business leadership and um if anyone's interested they can visit the book uh, website allinbook.net and there's a, a, a our publishers very generously let us now make available for free the introductory chapter which explains the key messages of the book and so on so certainly i would encourage your listeners and 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 uh, indeed anyone they're talking to in respect to employers to um, to, to 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 take a look at all in at least the, right. um, the introduction. Let's, let's, let's dig into that then. So you've gone from everybody's business to business leadership. What findings were there? Any different findings that came out of your new book? What kind of new kind of conversations did this one spark about leadership versus kind of an everybody's business? Uh, concept. So we're, 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 we're certainly not um, in any way resiling from the idea that everybody, this is everybody's business, but what we cover in All In, and the key message is actually about businesses no longer being either half-hearted or hesitant about embedding sustainability. They have to go all in for it. A little bit like, you know, putting all your chips on on, on, on one square or what have you, or being absolutely um, committed completely to to make something a, a success. That That's the all-in metaphor. And what the all-in book draws on is 20 years worth of a unique data set, which is the GlobeScan Sustainability Annual Leader Survey. That survey has been running since 1997. It may be some of your listeners are themselves part of the the group that contributes to that annual survey. And what it is, is, is the wisdom of an informed crowd. So it's experts across the world in sustainability and business. It's people in businesses, in NGOs, in the media, in academia, in some regulators around the world as well. And each year since 1997, GlobeScan and Sustainability have been asking that panel of experts, who do those experts think are the leading companies in corporate sustainability? And the, the way in which that list has changed from 1997 to 2019, the, the new survey is about to go into the field very, very shortly, 
is itself fascinating. But what we looked at, and we interviewed many of the people who were running the companies when they were defined as being a leader in sustainability. And we inter- so we interviewed people like Paul Polman, who's now stepped down mm-hmm. from Unilever and so on. And um, from all of the, the survey data and those interviews and our own research and, 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 and knowledge, we identified really five critical interlinking attributes that a business needs if it really and truly is to go all in for sustainability. And those can be summed up in just five words. Purpose, plan, culture, collaboration, and advocacy. So in other words, it starts with what is the purpose of of this business? Is the purpose authentic and inspiring and being used as a practical tool to take the really tough decisions? Is the business thinking about how are we profitably solving the problems of people and planet and not benefiting, not profiting from doing uh, harm. So having a clear purpose, having a comprehensive plan or, a, or the strategy of the organization, which is comprehensive when it comes to sustainability. So that's not just the business itself, but extending through its supply chain, increasing through its value chain, having the science or the evidence-based targets, having the the, the, the really stretched goals and measuring and reporting consistently on those, having um, leadership that, that drives all of that. I think for me, very often in the past, we haven't spent enough time thinking about culture in the context of embedding sustainability. And yet culture, the way that the organisation does things around here, absolutely fundamental to whether you really succeed or fail in embedding sustainability. So we identified a number of of really critical dimensions of a truly sustainable culture, one where, as they put it in Nike to us, innovation equals sustainability, sustainability equals innovation. The culture which is really sustainable is one which is genuinely empowering and uh, enabling employees to come forward with their ideas, to come forward as social entrepreneurs and and, and, and so on. It's a culture which is ethical and, and responsible, is transparent, and is actually also open. It's humble enough to recognise we haven't got all the solutions. Now, even the giant Unilever says, you know, there are areas where we're struggling, we need help from external sources that may be a social enterprise, it may be a university department it may be a, a social intrapreneur whatever but we need help on our sustainability journey and then the fourth attribute of a really all-in business we think is one which has a mindset and a skill set to collaborate with a whole variety of different partners that may be competitors sometimes it may be other businesses it may be social enterprises it may be academic institutions and so on we were really struck i think every interview we did for all in and this wasn't part of the interview protocol the questions that we developed in advance but everybody we interviewed talked spontaneously about the importance of working in collaboration in partnership with others if if they were really to move the dial 
So Catherine McLaughlin, for instance, the Chief Sustainability Officer at Walmart, made the point very forcibly that even a giant company like Walmart, on its own, can barely move the needle. It needs a whole range of different partnerships. And then the last thing we, we identified in, in All In was the importance of, of advocacy. And by advocacy, I mean speaking out, speaking up for social justice and for sustainable development. Very different to conventional lobbying, which may be quite self-interested, quite short-term, looking for a tax break, easing of a regulation, etc. Advocacy is taking a much longer-term perspective. It's about what are the policies and the changes that are needed in order to advance social justice and sustainable development, whether that's in terms of, of marriage equality, whether that's in terms of tackling um, racism and discrimination, or whether it's advocating, as the We Are Still In movement do, for greater action to implement the Paris Climate Agreement, and so on and so forth. And whereas in the past, a company might have got away with being a leader with just one or two of those all-in attributes, we think the crucial thing today is the interaction and the mutual reinforcement between those five different attributes. So you've gotten this really unique 30,000-foot view from all these different companies, and you've condensed it into this, this book. Is there still some things that you think companies are not doing that they should be doing? Well, first of all, I think um, we need many, many, many more companies really to get real and get serious about purpose, about a comprehensive plan or strategy for sustainability, about really developing their ethical and sustainable culture, about getting the, the collaboration muscle really working um, and, and, and really toned. And actually, I think advocacy, barring a few notable examples, is still um, very much a, a minority activity. Mm -hmm. So and obviously all the time, our, our knowledge about how you really make these different attributes work is being refined. You know, we're doing a, a lot of thinking now around the questions of, of the regenerative economy and, mm. and how principles of circular economy can be really advanced. But I think I would say very strongly, we need many more companies to apply the all-in leadership framework. I want to drill down just into one issue area, uh, climate change, because that's so linked to sustainability. This seems to be an area that does lack some leadership. Uh, in my mind that we have young people leading the way, people like uh, Greta Thunberg. Why do you think she's the face of you know, climate change fighting and it's not a CEO of a company or you know, other business leadership? Do you think there's a lack of leadership there? Are they trying? What's, what's your take? So I think the Greta Thunberg story is a a remarkable one, and I think you know a lot of us admire the the the, the kind of the the personal backstory mm. and the incredible uh, leadership that that she has shown. I mean, I think you know it's also, and this is in no way to minimise or 
mm-hmm. in any way to disparage the achievement that she has undoubtedly had in terms of galvanizing um, mm-hmm. a, a kind of a, a, a global movement. But I think, you know, right, right place, right time, again. Um, and there, that, that there is a crystallization as so many events around the world sort of cut through into busy people's daily lives. You know, things like mm. the appalling fires in Australia that have been raging for weeks and weeks and weeks now. Uh, um, things like the speed with which the ice is, is melting and the waters are warming up at the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, those kind of things, I think, are cutting through, and therefore there is a hunger for action. You've only got to look at the way in which awareness about the challenges of plastic have actually grown from mm-hmm. very, very little coverage back in 2014, 2015. I think it was only in 2015, for instance, that, that uh, or maybe in 2016, that Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth really started working in a significant way on, on plastic developed divisions around the topic and so on. But whether it's, that's quite the, the, the right year, but it's around then. And the, the point I'm making is that there is now the possibility with global connectivity for messages to cut through and messengers to cut through, like uh, Greta Thunberg, in a way that perhaps in previous generations wasn't so easy. Absolutely. You've sparked a few things in me there. And I think you kind of underline the role the media plays a little bit as well of looking for a story and wanting to have a, a great story to tell. I believe there's also a general attitude that probably corporations are the ones that created the problem. So how could they be the ones to lead us out of it in that hunger for action? I do think that's where Greta kind of came in and at least showed an action, which was the school strike that she was going to sit out from school a certain day, every week, every month and strike about the climate. And that's an action. And I think people are inspired by action. I think media looks for action. And then if there's a great story to tell, they'll elevate that. And then on top of it, there's this, you know, piece we've been talking about, which is there is this kind of look at corporates that, you know, you can't be a leader on it. Your business is the thing that's causing this. And yeah, you should have this kind of standalone thing on the side that maybe tries to help, but that kind of is maybe also a missed opportunity. Uh, And I think puts corporations in a box that attitude and mindset. And that's one of the things I think uh, we look to break a little bit on the podcast is to see that there are ways for mainline business to do things around sustainability that can help fight climate. It doesn't need to be this own, it's foundation that, that donates to the, these, these, these groups. So I think very clearly companies need to be developing their carbon strategy setting their baselines, setting science or evidence-based targets, and there's the the, the, the very important science-based targets initiative as, as one mechanism. You now have, as Larry Fink says in his 2020 letter to companies, some reporting frameworks with the uh, the task force on on um, on um, climate uh, risk and, and and financial disclosure and the 
sustainability accounting standards boards um, uh, work around uh, carbon and climate reporting you now have some frameworks obviously still to be refined and developed further and so on but which creates the the vehicles through through which investors can now start to understand the potential financial risk of stranded assets and of, of companies which are are not adjusting their entire business models in the context of, 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 of climate change. I I think, and the point I, I make about uh, Greta Thunberg to companies is that she is their employee, their customer, mm. potentially their co-owner um, as a shareholder. Um, through pension or savings funds in the future, as well as potentially being their nemesis, mm. not many years into the future. And I think, for me, one of the most powerful things I hear in talking to to business leaders around the world is how often they now talk about, like, we have kids and grandchildren and godchildren and so on, and we listen to them over the breakfast table or over the, the lunch table or at dinner, and we hear their, their, their sense of urgency and also their sense that the system is not working. I have been following for many years now, since it first came out at the millennium, the annual Edelman Trust Barometer. And this year, there is a... I mean, it was there last year as well, but even starker this year, there is one statistic, and perhaps it's the only statistic I'm going to use on your okay. podcast, um, yeah. and it's 18%, 1-8%. Only 18% of the people surveyed across the world by the Edelman Trust Barometer for 2020 think the system um, is working for them. And in one statistic, if you want the explanation for the rise of populism around the world, for the rise of, of Trump, for Brexit, for the AFD far-right party in Germany and so on and so forth, I think it's that 18%. Lots and lots of people nowadays, especially younger people, don't think the system is working for them, which is why, going back to our earlier conversation about the importance of resetting renewing capitalism, I think that is a really, really urgent imperative if we are going to to, to, to make progress. The, you know, the fact is that corporations are as powerful as ever. The system, I think, is as strong as ever, even where there's definitely this rise of wanting to try to disrupt the system. But I think for most of our listeners and most people, they're individuals who are working in a job um, they might feel a little stuck in it. They feel like they're it's without purpose. What advice would you give them as the best way to start trying to make a difference or trying to find more purpose in their work? So I think all of us, wherever we we are, can actually have some some positive impacts. Uh, and certainly, your listeners to this podcast, by definition, are going likely to be better educated and have more possibilities in life than many of the people around the world um, mm -hmm. who don't have access yet to schooling and electricity and so on and so forth. 
So already your listeners are relatively privileged men and women. We are, um, we, we can actually um, speak out and speak up in our workplace um, for promoting policies that will be pro-social justice, pro-sustainable development. We have power as consumers. And I always ask my, my students at Cranfield when I'm doing guest lectures around the world, how many people have chosen not to buy from a particular company because they disapprove of something that that company does or has done? And actually, nowadays, I get a very large number of people putting their hands up, much less for people putting their hands up to say they positively chosen a company based on on its good performance its good reputation but certainly nowadays um a greater willingness to to boycott uh, irresponsible company behavior um we can all be active citizens you know you have a vital election campaign in the united states this year people can get stuck in and and make sure that they themselves are registered to vote. Their friends, their neighbours, their their work, their co-workers are all registered to vote, so that they are actually able to be part of the democratic system. You'll notice I very carefully avoided making any suggestion of how they should vote, because that clearly is up to them. But thinking carefully about am I exercising my my democratic rights? My my role in in, in, in in society as an active citizen. Can I be part of some campaigning NGO? And one of, one of the things I think is really exciting is the way that some companies like Patagonia are helping grassroots community environmental community campaigning organisations to become more effective, more efficient, um, teaching them all kinds of organising community um, empowering techniques and so on so there are a number of practical ways if your employer has a, a system of, of voluntary champions around sustainability volunteer to be a sustainability champion if you are from a particular group of employees perhaps employees with disabilities or african-american employees um or LGBT plus employees, etc. Thinking about, can I get involved in the company network for, um, for, for, for for those employees and make a contribution that way? Can I be a social intrapreneur? Um, there's a wonderful resource, as you and I both know well, mm -hmm. called the League of Intrapreneurs, um, which has got kind of toolkits and examples and so on. So you can go and get inspired about the ways mm -hmm. in which people have been social entrepreneurs. So there are lots of practical things that even in a relatively junior position, all of us can actually take. And of course, I think very soon, there will also be opportunities if we start to build up a pension pot or a savings pot um, to be asking, is our money being invested sustainably and are the asset managers actually genuinely managing for the long term which again is back to the larry fink blackrock letter 
So you've mentioned three ways that people can get engaged as an employee, as a customer, as an individual. And I think what you've shared is practical. And even if you don't feel ready, you've spoken to something that's really, really true, which is there's plenty of resources to get yourself ready for when the time comes, whether that be reading a book, going to one of these toolkits, listening to podcasts. Uh, there's many ways to prepare yourself. Uh, and I want to close with you today on the individual level and ask you something we're asking all of our, our special guests, which is what are you breaking good on today? Outside of you know the sustainability work, where are you thinking we need to break some long-held traditions or mindsets? So I've had the pleasure and privilege for almost seven years now, I'm just coming to the end of my term, as the chairman of a charity called Carers UK. And Carers UK exists, it's been in existence since 1965, to help promote a society which respects and values and crucially supports unpaid uh, caregivers. So family members, friends who are looking after a loved one, it may be you're looking after an elderly parent or another elderly relative, it may be you're caring for your partner with a long-term health condition, it may be you have a sibling or a son or daughter who is disabled, or you are looking after a friend who perhaps has some kind of addiction, etc. And uh, whether it's in the United States, where um, something like one in, 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 in six or one in seven of the US workforce will be juggling their job and caring for a loved one. In the UK, we think now it's about one in seven of our, our workforce that at any one time are juggling their job and being a, a, an unpaid carer. And I'm passionate about getting better support for working carers. So people who are juggling their job and looking after a, 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 a loved one. And so we have a great network called Employers for Carers, which supports employers both in the private sector and the public sector to become great employers for working carers. And I do think we have to get across the idea that most of us during the course of our lives will actually be caring for a family member or a close friend or neighbor, etc. And this is part of what it is to be human. It's part of just the human condition. But actually, we can do so much better at preparing people to be a great carer, making them more resilient, and employers have a critical part to play. And I'm trying to get employers to see if they're embracing diversity and inclusion and improving health and well-being in the workforce and so on, then an absolutely fundamental part of that is what are they doing about their working carers? I think the value of carers is a, a wonderful issue area to break good on. It's one we haven't heard on the podcast before, and I'm glad you've raised some visibility for it. Uh, so I want to thank you for your time, Professor Grayson. How can our listeners keep up with your writings and your thoughts? What is the best way to stay engaged uh, with, Very with you? So I have a personal website, which is davidgrayson.net, because I'm passionate about networking and building networks of like-minded uh, folk around the world. And if they're on Twitter, I have a Twitter handle, which is at davidgrayson underscore. Great. And the, the latest book is called All In, The Future of Business Leadership. We will put the link uh, into our description. Thank you, Professor Grayson, for your time. You've been a wonderful guest. 
My pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Take care, Joe. Bye-bye. Thank you. But life still goes on. I can't get used to living without, living without, living without you by my side.